Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a podcast about board gaming. Surprise. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my good friend. Why do you always forget my name every week? I'm worried that if I say it too many times, it'll summon you know, the demon that is Mark Bigney. Well, I'm right here, so. Like I said, it is a podcast about board games. We are going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, games we played this week, news and why it doesn't matter, the feature game of the week, which is Crusaders, and the topic, which is thematic disconnects. Well, Mark, I've been known to, you know, be down on my collection. But after this weekend, there was all sorts of great news. We went to a big gaming day. I brought tons of games, and 99% of them were played. And I have two games, like Great Western Trail and Feast for Odin, that come with scoring pads, which are completely used up. Like, hmm. how is that a feeling knowing that, you know, like when you open up a game, there's a scoring pad, usually like it's full, you know what I mean? It's like one or two sheets, totally used up things. We've completed a second campaign in Imperial Assault and more in the news about that. How are you doing this week and what did you play? So this week I played another game of Hyperborea. This is a game that if I bothered to use the scoring pad, it would probably be full up. I just don't use scoring pads as a general rule, uh, mostly because I'm lazy. I got in trouble in grade school for never showing my work in mathematics. Uh, same problem. Anyway, uh, I want to talk specifically about the Light and Shadow expansion, which we didn't talk a whole heck of a lot about when we reviewed it a few weeks ago. Because it's a real shame that it's not more widely available in North America. It was a, a relatively limited production run in Italy. Apparently all those copies have been snatched up. I had to import mine from Italy, but apparently you just can't really find copies of it, which is a shame because the, me the mechanisms that it introduces, the light and dark cubes, are really great and they really add to flexibility and tactical choices to a game that's already pretty heavy in flexibility and tactical choices. And more toys are always for the good. So... People have been talking about wanting to reprint the, the the Light and Shadow expansion. The designers have chipped in and chimed in and said that's probably not going to happen, which 
again, doubly a shame. So I would encourage anybody who's at all interested in Hyperborea, you can find it on clearance in a bunch of places. It, you know, it's, it's a tremendous value for the money now. And just get some cubes of the appropriate size in white and black and download the rules online and go for it. Because every time I introduce Hyperborea to people, I always introduce the light and shadow rules, specifically the, the, the light and dark cubes. The other stuff I tend to leave aside until people have played a few times. But uh, I had a couple, another couple of converts who said they seemed to really, really seem to enjoy it. I've never had a bad time with Hyperborea. Yeah, the other thing is, was always shoot an email out to the designer. More emails they get, maybe you never know, they might throw a Kickstarter up and print off a run. Who knows? Weirder things have happened. I'm going to start with uh, Between Two Cities by Stonemeyer Games. It's just one of these, you know, tile laying. You either, you know, do four in a row or five in a row, or you're making a little city, and it scores in all sorts of different ways. And I just want to put this to bed. There's another game called Quadropolis, and I just think Quadropolis is a superior game. In between two cities, you're like drafting, so you have never, you don't have any idea what tiles you're about to get. Not only that, but the person to your left and right are also adding to the city, so you have no idea what they're going to do. It just seems very random compared to Quadropolis, where you can actually plan out what you're doing. I just think it's a better game. Not that either one of them are fantastic in any way, but for what they for what they uh, try to accomplish and what for and for what they do accomplish, I think Quadropolis is the better game. I was intrigued by the gimmick of between two cities, the notion of building cities with a partner or what have you. But it really does seem like I haven't played it myself. Uh, but it really does seem like it didn't really promise much in terms of in terms of that drafting is a tricky thing to do in terms of balancing future expectations and current knowledge state. We've commented on this in a number of context of another number of other drafting games. Uh, apparently, some people prefer Between the Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig, which is apparently the, the jazzed-up version. I don't know if you've had a chance to try that yet. Oh, I want to try it. I, like I said, what you just said, like the notion of of you know taking the lowest score between the two, it seems very interesting. But I think in in practice, it doesn't it doesn't it's not very satisfying to me anyway. Yeah, it's a shame. I'm, it's always nice when you can find uh, larger player count games that are reasonably quick and engaging. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why I still really like Paper Tales. I, I know you you have your misgivings about it, and I respect that. But always looking for fillers that can occupy that time scale and have a little bit more meat on the bones. Uh, <clears throat> maybe more on that later. Got a chance to try Factory Funner. This is a game that is a uh, sequel to well, a redevelopment of Factory Fun. So Factory Funner says it is funner and biggerer. Uh, sorry, no, it only says bigger. I think it should have said biggerer. It would have been awesomer. <laughs> now, I'd never tried Factory Fun because it there were a number of, of warning signs that indicated it was not a game for me because it is primarily a game about spatial puzzles, linking one thing to another thing. I've commented in the past, and let me repeat it, I do not enjoy such games. I do not enjoy such puzzles. I It's one of the reasons why I don't even like pick-up-and-deliver games, and they're not even really spatial puzzles, but they're just enough of spatial puzzles often enough that I don't tend to enjoy them. Anyway, Factory Funner was exactly as I anticipated, not for me. Capital N, capital F, capital M. Now, it was, it was perfectly pleasant. It was very quick, and it, I did look over at other people's boards, what they were doing with their own little factories, because you build your own little factories in Factory Funner, and their boards seemed to be part of perhaps an interesting game. You know, these these incredibly tortured Rube Goldberg concoctions of pipes going every which way and strange connections being worked out. All of that having been said, though, 
it did seem like the path to victory did involve making boring structures because the, the way the game works is you lose points for every pipe you use. And so the truly visually interesting ones, and to my mind, the inventive ones, the ones that required a certain degree of cleverness and spatial, spatial orientation, those are the ones that didn't do as well. Whereas uh, my, my factory was incredibly dull and I was like, okay, I'll put this one here. I'll put this one ne right next to it. Oh, there's nothing that'll go right next to that. Forget it. I'll skip this round. And that was more or less what I was, oh, the only thing that I was able to do because everything else struck me as unpleasant. And uh, so it does seem, it does seem, my one substantive comment on Factory Funner is that it seems like sometimes the smart play is at odds with the fun play. And I don't like it when games do that. More on that later, definitely. Uh, so that was my experience of Factory Funner. I do think, though, that if you like spatial puzzles, you should absolutely give it a shot because it's it's very charming in a lot of ways. No, yeah, I have no... Like, I, I ordered this in. I was worried that I wouldn't like it when it came in, and I I love it. I have all these kind of apps on my phone, like, you know, like power station thing where you're, like, connecting wires or plumber. So I'm not sure the exact names where you're connecting all these different colored pipes to try to, you know, engage all these things. And it's just like that. I'm I'm more than happy with it and uh, super fun, funner even. As an instantiation of that genre of puzzle, I thought it was very, very successful. And again, those are the kind of puzzles that I just can't stand. So I really, I'm surprised it's not more popular than it is. Both of them, really. Because, the, you know, Factory Funner and Factory Fun seem to be fundamentally the same, no pun intended, in terms of, you know, being a, a pretty clever instantiation of, the, of these kinds of things. So, uh, yeah. All right. That's Factory Funner by Kowali Games. I got to play Photosynthesis. Photo. Photosynthesis? Photosynthesis. I got to play Photosynthesis. Close enough. Close enough. Anyway, it's by Blue Orange Games, and it's a fantastic game about growing trees, and it's very, very, has a very nice color palette, and very well, you know, very cool looking trees with little animals on them and the sun rotates around the board and you're trying to push other trees out. It's very interesting. I really enjoyed it. It's it's very beautiful. Blue Orange Games, for a relatively small company, relative newcomer, they put out a number of very solid, very visually appealing games. They also published Blue Lagoon, for what it's worth, which is probably one of my favorite games of the year. I've never tried Photosynthesis, but, oh man, it's so beautiful. Yeah, it has very interesting choices, like when to kill your trees off to get the points, and you get to gauge when the sun's going to come back around so you can get those trees back out again. It's very well done, in my opinion. This was the first time you played? It was the first time I played it. Yeah, I should really give it a shot. I got to try a new map for Stevenson's Rocket, namely the Eastern USA map. As part of the reprint, when Grail Games reprinted Stevenson's Rocket, they introduced two new maps that had been designed by the Doctor some years ago, the Eastern USA and China. And I I hadn't had a chance to try them because I hadn't been willing to subject new players to it. Uh, but this time I felt a little bold and said, oh, whatever. Even though two, two people at the table were, were new to the game, I, I pulled out the Eastern USA map because I decided to be selfish. And the Eastern USA map did a couple of things that were really interesting and good and another couple of things about which I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about. One thing that it did was it really made the the strategy of pursuing goods investment more lucrative because one of the things we commented on when reviewing the game is that it can be a bit of a new player trap to overinvest in goods because they occupy the central part of the board. It sounds so so lucrative, but it really, at the end of the day, it, it should be a secondary concern. 
In the USA map, they make it so that there are more quantities of goods, so as a result, winning majority in any one category is potentially easier, and therefore takes fewer actions, and therefore is more lucrative. So that part I really, really liked. The part that was strange, and this isn't necessarily good or bad, is that it seemed that the placement of the locomotives is such that mergers will happen more frequently and sooner. And this can be quite disarming both for new players and old players. As a result, uh, the game can end much sooner than you might anticipate. It, you know, the, the, the game end is always on a precipice, on a knife edge rather. And it's also the case that the dominant railroad will be less large. And this I could definitely see as being appealing to some people. One of the things I really like about Stevenson's Rocket is watching one railroad swallow everything else, trying to predict which one it's going to be and make sure that you have a good stake in them. And then at the end of the game, they've connected to 20 cities or something of, of that nature. In our game of Eastern USA, the longest railroad had connected to 11 cities, which is very, very, very strange. That at least shows you how much a system can evolve with just a change of topography. So that was very pleasing to see. And so I'm, I'm quite uh, keen to see how the China map works. So that would also make the goods that much more useful, right? Because if the game ends sooner and the rails aren't as you know lucrative, then that just means those points that you do get of goods will be that much more. Yes and no. You're absolutely right. It was, we saw more cities not pay out goods because they weren't connected to anything. Again, because the game ended sooner than people thought they were. So they thought they would have a chance to run a railroad to connect to a city, but they didn't. But yes, the changing length of the game did mean that you had to, you had to get in there and get the goods. Yes, it, it was very different, which is what you want out of a variant map. I probably would, I think my prior logic of not wanting to play with new players on a variant map, it was probably sound. And so I might wait to get a table full of experienced players to, to whip out the China map. But uh, Stevenson's Rocket, as I've said before, I've been enjoying this game for almost 20 years now, and it uh, continues to impress. So that was uh, further plays of the new Grail edition of Stevenson's Rocket. I got to play Petrichor by Ape Games. This is a game where you get to control clouds and control the weather and grow your little crops and and move the clouds around and have thunderstorms gush water down bountifully over your your luscious crops and have them grow. And it's another – I was in this natural mode apparently, you know, <laughs> growing trees and growing plants. And, and it was another really interesting game that used a bunch of different mechanisms that you don't see very often in games and, and these these – Totally unique themes were was was a great change for once. Seems like a natural crossover. Yeah, that's what I was saying. The 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 gentleman that owned the both, I said, you know, we have to make up rules that we can play, you know, play them both together at the same time. It'd be great. Sounds perfect. Played another game of the Voyages of Marco Polo again under the aegis of things we've reviewed before. Uh, in the past couple of reviews, uh, specifically with respect to Teotihuacan, I commented that you know I wish it were a little bit more clean, a little bit more focused than it was. Still really enjoyed Teotihuacan. But playing Voyages of Marco Polo really did remind me what I was talking about in those contexts. And again, this is this is because these are some of the same Italian designers who do the, the this previous work that we talked about when we were talking about Coimbra, when we were talking about Teotihuacan. Because the Voyages of Marco Polo, despite the fact that there's a lot going on in terms of a strategy space, it's relatively tight, it's relatively focused. And a number of people at the table commented that. They said, I thought this was going to be a hot mess because of all, you know, there's a lot of components running around and a lot of tiles and tokens. But it really is a relatively straightforward game in terms of grokking how the points work and such. Anyway, so it had been a little bit too long. I think the Voyages of Marco Polo needs to be in more regular rotation. It looks like every other generic bland Euro guy on the on the front cover, but I, I really I really do think we were right in that it is one of the better ones of the past 10 years. 
so that's another plug for Voyages of Marco Polo. Did you play with the expansion? I we played with one of them. Yes, we played with uh, the Venice board just to just because the additional rules overload is so minimal. It's just one extra action space, and it really does make the game feel a little bit more friendly. So that's one of the reasons why I think it's okay with with new players. When I'm feeling for a slightly more cutthroat experience, I, we 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 get rid of uh, the the Venice board. We didn't play with agents because agents are, I think. You and I are both of the opinion that agents are kind of okay, but the additional rules grit is considerable yeah. for and for the compar- time and the shuffling and the fiddly bits. Exactly. The, the the fewer times you have to pull out the reference sheet to remember what the iconography means, the better. And uh, so, yeah, agents, I'm I'm not 100 percent sold on, but the Venice board, absolutely. So, and of course, the more special powers, the better. So we always include all the characters in every mix. And that was Marco Polo by Zeman Games. And speaking of Teotihuacan, I got to introduce that to two new players, and I've yet to see anyone not enjoy this game. It's it's fairly he- you know heavy load at the beginning, and the techs are always fiddly. Once again, they were missed several times by by even myself. It's something that you have to constantly remember that you have all of these additional actions on the spaces that you land on. But but overall, once again, loved by all. Teotihuacan, City of the Gods, by NSKN Games. Loved is a strong word. I really liked it, but (laughs) I I am in the room. Anyway, played a game of Dominant Species by Chad Jensen. So this is a game that was put out by GMT almost 10 years ago now. And I initially was enthused about it because Chad Jensen had designed one of my favorite war games, namely Combat Commander. It's not much of a war game, but, you know, it's war game-esque. And uh, Chad Jensen, since then, has designed one more war game system called Fighting Formations, which is, you know, it's no combat commander, that's for sure, and a bunch of Euro games. And all of his Euro games uh, have been interesting, but my feeling about them is largely the same as it is about Dominant Species, which is a little more cutthroat and take that than it needs to be. There are a whole bunch of card effects in Dominant Species that can be truly brutal. And the brutality that's baked into the game system, I actually really like, because Dominant Species is a game about species competition during an ice age. And as the glaciers spread, habitats can get wiped out, and suddenly what was a stronghold of of yours is now consisting of a small number of critically endangered species that are going to die soon if they don't get out. That part, I love. But there are all, all these take-that effects and all these take-that cards and, and, and a bunch of other stuff, which just isn't to my taste in a game of that weight and length. And then there's also the length itself. I was about to say the same thing. When you have a game that already is punishing you over and over again, that is that long, and then you throw in these you know random cards, it really it, it, it pulls you out of the game for sure. I agree. I would really, really, really love Dominant Species if it were reliably two hours, even if it were reliably two hours, two hour, two and a half hours, I think. But when it comes to worker placement, it's a very crowded field. Even in the context of worker placement with a whole bunch of other special effects, that's also a relatively crowded field. And when it comes to worker placement plus area majority contests, I very much prefer Empire's Age of Discovery because it is just at the right level of streamlining that I think there's a lot going on, but you don't have to worry about something coming out of left field and suddenly 20 of your cubes are dead. And again, this this is mostly a preference thing because of the length and because of the fact that I can't 
sometimes players can't see that extra step. And it's, you know, it's not fun to be either the person who gets all their cubes wiped off the board or sitting next to the person whose all their cubes get wiped off the board in a game of that length and a game of that complexity. So Dominant Species, I think, is a good design. It's just not for me. And uh, I've given it a number of tries over the years, I, I, but I think I'm, I'm done trying to get it to work for me. So that was Dominant Species. Mark brought a fantastic game to the table called Res Publica. Oh, here we go. It's a fantastic card game oh, by boy. Reiner Knizia. Yeah, okay. I like it seemed I know it seemed like I was having a terrible time, but this game I never played Hanabi before, but I played another game called Beyond Baker Street. And I was having the same feeling in that where I can't see my cards, but I have figured out what my cards are, and I am trying to give information to other people. And either A, they're not picking up on it, or I'm misreading what they have in their hand. And that was just getting, it it was obviously the people on the table that that was getting frustrating to me. But I think it it was over the top due to my lack of of sleep. (laughs) Well, here I was bracing myself for nothing. When I hear Walker use the word fantastic that often, and based on his visible frustration during our plays of Respublica, I thought he was going to pan it. Which would put him in good company because Respublica is hated by a lot of people, even by diehard Knizia fans. It's got a very low rating on BoardGameGeek, and a lot of you, even uh, you know, self-avowed Knizia aficionados think it's not very good. I'd been wanting to try Respublica for years and years and years. I just never had the opportunity. I finally got a copy, and I really liked it. I thought it was pretty great for a game of that length. And for what it's worth, Walker, I agree with you 100%. I was getting solid Hanabi vibes. Because the way the game works, it's a trading game where your ability to negotiate is strictly circumscribed. On your turn, you get to make a very specific offer or a very specific request. You're not allowed to engage the other half of the trade at all. You can't say, well, I've got a couple Vikings and what I'm looking for is Goths. No, you can either say, I want a couple Goths or I've got a Viking and that's it. And the other people get get to make offers and then you pick one. And indeed, it is about, a lot of the game is about managing the information flow, letting people know what you need, letting people know what you have or not uh, one player who we played twice back to back, and uh, one one person, uh, let's call him Louis, planted us both times. And at the end of the second game, he pointed out, "It's like, look, what I did this time was uh, I had these cards to form a set, but I just didn't let you know that I had them until I knew that the market had appreciated them to such an extent that I could get them for the cheap." And yeah, it's about inf- manipulating the information flow. I will say. There's a strong rich-get-richer problem, and the luck of the draw is considerable, but it's a 30- to 45-minute card game with some clever bits. That's not a serious problem in the context of a 30-45 minute card game with some clever bits. I'm very glad I finally tracked it down. I really enjoyed Respublica. Yep, no, I'd be happy to play that again. Why do people hate it so much? I don't know. Maybe mm. because it's so off of what his normal designs are, right? When you think, consider what, what you know, heavier weight longer, more in-depth games that he puts out. Maybe when this came along, they were, that's what they were looking for. And when it didn't deliver, then there's outrage. Maybe, but he he published this for the first time. It's strange. Despite the fact that people rate it so poorly, it's been reprinted so many times. It was first published in 91. Knizia wasn't a huge name back then. And he's done lots of lighter filler games. Anyway, I thoroughly enjoyed Respublica. I'm going to, I'm going to, I look forward to exploring more of it. Now onto the news and why it doesn't matter. What have you got for the news for us, Walker? Well, I thought we we forgot to do the game from last year. Do well, we that's your do fault. Do we want to edit no, that we, in we, we nor- or do we, we want to just throw it in here? We norm- we normally do it at the beginning, Walker, and well, the beginning was your... Well, so you, we'll, we'll uh, shoehorn it in here. Okay. A year ago today, we reviewed Space Hulk. And it really has... It's, a, it's, it's almost a 30-year-old game that is now, you know, one year later. So, you know, not much has changed. <laughs> 
Have you introduced it to anybody since we I have not. I have not. I have shown it to two other people, and uh, both of them were big fans. One of them tracked down their own copy. So it continues to win friends wherever it goes. A perennial classic, standing the test of time. Definitely before it's time. Absolutely. So that was Space Hulk from last year. News and why it doesn't matter. I Both of my news things are are all digital news. Like I was talking about before, uh, Descent now has a new adventure. It's called Embers of Dread for Journeys of the Dark app for Descent. So I'm going to be looking forward to uh, playing that one. My second piece of digital news. Well, I don't know. Do you want me to do them both? No, go ahead. So the second piece of digital news is uh, Bards of the Infirmary is getting a digital app as well. Bards of the Infirmary? What are you talking about? I said Shards of Infinity. <laughs> I fell for it. So yes, uh, Shards of Infinity. Shards of Affinity. Yeah, Shards of Affinity. No, Fards of Infinity. Fards of Infinity will uh, be getting their own digital app. So that'll be interesting. We'll be able to play it online together. That'll be much easier and faster. I'm just looking forward to the expansion. I want to I wanna see what they do with the system. I want to see them beef up the multiplayer rules. Yeah. And that, like it's a quick, like we were just talking about, a quick 30-minute game with simple rules, play it, and be done. So apparently in 2019, we're going to get a, a version of Carnival of Monsters. Carnival of Monsters went up on Kickstarter, and it failed to reach its funding goal, in part because its funding goal was, you know, ambitious. It wanted a quarter million bucks for basically a card game. And I'm not saying that, it, that a quarter million bucks isn't a reasonable amount of money to raise for a card game. It's just a little bit outside the realm of what the market will expect. And it, it was banking primarily on, number one, the designer being Richard Garfield. And number two, that it had a whole bunch of famous artists from Magic the Gathering. So it's, you know, the designer of Magic the Gathering with some of the artists of Magic the Gathering coming together. Anyway, that project was canned. Uh, but apparently they're reworking it. They're going to be working now with German artists, uh, you know, more for the, 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 the German market. And it's going to be released in 2019. I'm always interested when people respond to market failure or perceived market failure and try to retool. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm curious what, what's going to happen with Carnival of Monsters. Richard Garfield is not really a designer I have much enthusiasm for pretty much ever. But he does sometimes does some interesting stuff. So that's worth looking out for. And he did design Bunny Kingdom, which I hear is the, the best game of 2018. Look forward to that in a year review episode. The other bit of news I have, also in 2019, is there's going to be a new version of Democker. And to a certain extent, I'm surprised it's taken this long, because when Democker was first published, it was, you know, a three to four hour Euro game, which was unheard of at the time. And now practically every other Euro game is in excess of two hours. So I'm actually surprised that Demacher has been out of the market for so long. It is a very good design. I enjoyed it a, a, a great deal. They say that this is going to be put up by Spielworks. And they say there are going to be some changes, which is interesting because Demacher has already had three different editions with some rules changes here and there, but nothing fundamental to the system, I would say. Although the difference between first and second edition is rather considerable. So I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to be happening. I hope that Carl uh, Heinz Schmiel, the original designer, will be involved. But as a fan of the game, I'm interested to see what they're going to do with the system. So that was the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our feature game of the week, which is Crusaders, which is a little bit lighter Euro-y type game, which is a nice change from the heaviness that we've been reviewing so far. Mark, how, how does Crusaders fall into our timeline? So Crusaders 
was put out by Taster Minstrel as a result of a Kickstarter, so naturally it was deluxified. Deluxified! I'm, look, I'm going to try to practice what I preach here. Uh, I don't like the word deluxified TM. You have to say deluxified TM. That's the way that it works. But whatever. I mean, new words come up. Just the fact that I don't like it doesn't mean it's not a legitimate term. Uh, so I'm going to try to stop complaining about the word deluxified. It was designed by Seth Jaffe. Seth Jaffe's other prior work is perhaps most famously Eminent Domain. Eminent Domain is a card game that rips off uh, rather shamelessly Glory to Rome and Race for the Galaxy, two excellent games, and it managed to be, let's say, somewhat less than the sum of its parts, again, being somewhat diplomatic. Anyhow, it was a very successful Kickstarter, raised a, a fair whack of money, and uh, it has now reached... Uh, backers grubby little hands, at least backers north of the parallel, because apparently this is one of those rare instances where Canadian backers got their copies before the American backers. It's true. And on that note, I did some unboxing videos for those who haven't seen them yet. I would just like to say, in all sincerity, Walker's unboxing videos are exactly what I want from unboxing videos. I, it was I think great so too. It's just like I said. No, I'm, I'm no, so sick no of sarcasm. These. I love it. I'm I'm so sick of these, you know, highly produced unboxing videos where they go through all this, you know, greatest game, this is my favorite publisher. This is, yeah, I'm just, this is what, I just do it on Facebook Live, unbox the thing, and it's done. We are not fancy people. Yeah. We are not going to produce fancy content. Walker will show you the components, but he's not going to ooh and ah and give you different camera angles and wait for the camera to get in focus. No. He's going to rip open the box. He's going to put the box in between his teeth, shake his head back and forth vigorously, and let the components fly all over the... Okay, I'm exaggerating a bit now. But uh, I do not have patience for, like, 25-minute video um uh, uh, unboxings. I really like the way Walker does it. Cheers. All right. So, yes. So, if you feel like checking them out, they're on Facebook, and they're also on YouTube... And I'm probably going to be doing some more. And if Cross promotion time. And, and if you don't like them, then uh, let me know. And I'll either stop or uh, make sure I do more just to uh, make you angry. Anyway, back to Crusaders. So, Walker, why don't you tell us what you do in Crusaders They will be done in your traditional unhelpful manner? Well, I'll tell you what you don't do in Crusaders. You don't crusade, that's for sure. <laughs> so... No liberation of any holy lands <laughs> will be found in this box. That is so true. But what you do and do in Crusaders is you're going to be manipulating your own action rondelle, and you're going to be trying to get your engine up and running faster than your opponents. So can we talk about the theming first and just get it out of the way? Sure. Let us get the, the theming of Crusaders out of the way. I think the theming is very weird, and and every time I play it, and every time I think about the game, and every time I read about the game, I'm more confused, and finally I read some comments by the designer that finally made it all click. Allow me to, and I'm being sincere here, allow me to try to sincerely summarize what the game is thematically, all right? The theme of the game is, Seth Jaffe thinks the Knights Templar were cool. That's the theme of the game. And, and I, I, I'm trying not to be unkind here because you say that, that you said that what we don't do in the game is crusade, despite the fact that one of the actions on the rondel is the crusade action. And indeed, when someone pointed this out to Seth Jaffe, just in the context of, you know, trying to figure out what the game was like, he said, well, that's really kind of a misnomer. So this is a game called Crusaders, not the Crusades, because he didn't want the game to be about the Crusades per se. Fair enough. 
He instead wanted it to be about the Crusader Orders, and only about the multiple Crusader Orders because he thought that different Knights Templar competing against each other wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. And in the game Crusaders, they will be done. No Holy Lands are liberated. You don't even go towards the Holy Lands. They're not even on the map. They're not even on the map, which is fine because, again, a lot of the Crusades weren't about the Holy Land, and that's fine. But here, here ultimately is my problem with Crusaders, they will be done. I don't have a problem with slapped-on historical themes unless... It is about a historical event that could rightly be described as a series of unimaginable horrors. I'm of the opinion that it is lazy, intellectually dishonest, and disrespectful to have a game that is nominally about travesties and horrific events and whitewash them and just make them so abstracted and weird and alternate history. That, I think, is is just an act of disrespect. It's, it's borderline irresponsible. And so to, to make a game nominally about the Crusaders, but you don't really want to make it about the Crusades, it just seems like a dodge. And the designer has said, look, I, I just wanted to make sort of an alternate history kind of version kind of thing. It's like, okay, fine. But if you don't actually want to talk about the actual things that happened... Why make it about this at all? I think there's a certain responsibility when you make a game about terrible historical events to be a cer- to have a certain degree of honesty. I talked about this before when talking about Mombasa. Mombasa is like, look, I wanted to make a game about trading companies during the colonialization period of Africa. Slavery's bad though, so let's pretend it never happened. That's irresponsible. It's why I think Endeavor is better than Puerto Rico. I don't think you're a bad person if you play either of these games, by the way. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be published. I'm not saying they shouldn't be played. I'm not saying that you should feel guilty playing them. What I'm saying is is that creators have a certain responsibility. And when Endeavor decided to treat the area of colonialism, they grappled with slavery in a sincere way, both in the context of the game mechanics and in terms of the rulebook. And when Puerto Rico decided to deal with more or less the same, the same topic, they decided to whitewash it. And I'm just saying that as creators, if we want to regard board games as more than just puerile juvenile entertainment, if you want to regard them as works of art, as serious cultural artifacts, I think it's incumbent on designers to grapple with these things with a little bit more responsibility and gravity than they did with, with in this one. That's what I have to say about the theming. I completely agree. I think he just didn't want like a generic uh, fantasy. You know, guess what? Here's yet no more knights building castles and so forth. And then he's put in this theme and I just think it was the wrong choice. So what do we do in, in Crusaders? You have this rondelle and it's very unlike other rondelle systems. In normal rondelle systems, it's mostly all of the players are on the rondelle and it limits you to which actions you can take because you can only go so far around the rondelle and you have to pay more resources or whatever to take the actions that you need. In this one, you have your own personal rondelle, and you can take any action that you want. And what you do is, after you've taken the action, you're going to be manipulating these golden tokens around your rondelle. And depending on how many tokens are on an action is going to make it how powerful that action is. Anybody that's played the traditional game Moncala is familiar with this idea. You pick up the pile and you start distributing everything in the pile one space away. So the more things that group up on an action space, the more powerful the action is. But then it just disgorges all those actions around the the, the rondel. Uh, this is kind of within striking distance of, of what was done in Trajan, the Steffenfeld design. And indeed, Seth Jaffe in the designer notes uh, comments that... The inspiration for Crusaders came when he was reading about Trajan, and he imagined how the, the uh, a Rondel Mancala would work. And then when Trajan came out and it was very different from what he'd imagined, he figured, oh, okay, well, I guess I've got my own game design then. And sure enough, it is very different from how it is in Trajan, but I do get uh, various vibes for that. 
I, I like interesting action selection mechanisms. I've talked about this before. And I'm a huge fan of all the Gertz Rondel games. Uh, I really liked how the Rondel worked in Teotihuacan because Teotihuacan was basically a Rondel uh, with, with another name. And I really, really, really like the cleverness of this action selection element because fundamentally to me, the appeal of Rondel games or action selection games is about making you have to take control of the tempo of the game. If you always take the most obvious or the cheapest choice... If it's a well-designed game, a clever person who sometimes does the more expensive or suboptimal version at the right time will outpace you. And I did definitely get that feeling in Crusaders that will be done. Sometimes, if, if you just always take the action space with the most pieces on it, you're not going to do well. You have to plan ahead. You have to sometimes take the less efficient action, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that I felt was very clever. Yeah, I was, that's one of my points is that you have to figure out because one of the other things you can do is upgrade these actions. So usually what you do is you it changes depending on which night you're playing, but basically all of your actions you can do only one thing. But you can upgrade that action and some of them have different choices. But it's pretty well skipping your turn and making figuring out when that is the best time to do it where it's going to be the least disadvantage to you is one of the key elements of the game. Well, let me give credit where credit is due because the rest of what I have to say about Crusaders is probably not going to be nearly as glowing. It's not really skipping a turn because when you upgrade an action slice, you have the option of distributing the pawns on any space as though you had done that action. Say I do action one, but I have all these pawns on action three, but I really don't want to do action three. I want to do action four or five or something, and I want those pawns that are on those other actions to go elsewhere. So I upgrade action one, but I'm then allowed to distribute whatever action space I want. So I choose action three, setting myself for a future turn. Again, I like action selection mechanisms where you get to plan for your future turns in this way. And it doesn't, to me, it didn't really feel like I was skipping a turn. For me, it felt more like I was prepping for future turns to make them really good. So it was much more satisfying than just yeah. a skip a turn mechanism would be. Yeah, sorry. It was a misuse of words. I shouldn't have said skip a turn. I meant giving up your action is it's, what I meant to say. It's on the internet now, Walker. Yeah, you it's, can't it's, take it's it back. Forever. I'm sure in 10 years it'll be dug up in my tweets and used against me somehow. So the downside, though, of all this is that I don't really find any of the action spaces very interesting. And the upgrades in particular, I think, highlight this. Much of the time... When you upgrade an action, all that it does is allow you to use leftover action pawns to do what's called an influence action. And the influence action is the most exciting action you can ever do in Euro games, which is to say you trigger this action and it just scores you points. Not really based on some sort of established income, although some buildings give you more points every time you do a, a, a an influence action. Not really based on your board position either. Just, you know, I'm going to get some points now for my influence action. And so we, although I, I will say that a lot of these upgraded versions allow for delightful portmanteaus. So Huey of Huey, Dewey, and Louis fame came up with these lovely smush names. So you can muster an influence, which is either musfluence or influster, which both of those are great words, I think. And but more or less what it means is actually sometimes I find the upgraded versions less interesting than the unupgraded versions because in an unupgraded version, you have to worry about your... Say, say you need three tokens to, to muster something for whatever reason, right? If you've got three tokens there, you figure, okay, do I do this now even though I've got other, other fish I want to fry? Or do I do it later knowing that if I for, if forego this action and do it later, I'm going to have excess tokens there that will go to waste, Right? Those are some efficiency decisions that I think are interesting. If it's an upgraded muster action, though, and you know that any leftover tokens that can go there can just be cashed in for extra points, well, then it's a less interesting action now. It's, it, it, it forces you the tempo less. It allows you to be much more forgiving in terms of what you're doing, which 
generally dovetails into some other things that I have to say, but I won't say them yet because I don't want to... I agree with everything you said, but a counterpoint is that some of these upgraded actions uh, increase the player interaction. Yes. One of, one of the upgraded action is move and build or move and crusade, which is technically move and fight. So what you can do is you can quickly, you know, snipe in and take someone's token that they're about to take. Or if they, if an opponent was in a space and they're about to build a building there, you can quickly move in and build before they can, which is is the most direct player interaction that there is. Yes, you're right that those are the more interesting versions. And during the turns where someone is able to pull those off, those are by far the most interesting turns of, the, of Crusaders because it does have that player interaction. It's a master stroke. It's difficult to pull off. Generally speaking, you need to have your ducks in a row, and it's very impressive to see someone do it, and especially since you really have to drive those Saracens out of Denmark and get those Prussians out of northern Italy because that is, you know, again, the theming comes alive when, when we're, uh, you know, clearing out that mosque that was built in Amsterdam. But... It is worth emphasizing that although those turns are great and really emphasize the player interaction, most of the time there's not really much player interaction at all. This is true. It's the normal uh, player interaction that you see in these types of games is, I got there before you did, I took that option before you did, much like most deck builders or any other games like that. Yep. Let's go over some my good points before we, before we go into other stuff. As <laughs> uh, replayability, right? Uh, you're, you seed the whole board with uh, these building tokens, which either make buildings easier to build or give you uh, victory points when you build them. There's enemy tokens, like we talked about, that get randomly seeded all over the board, which will make it different every time. And on top of that, the brown tokens have buildings on them, and they're going to be in different places, which does drive how people move on the map every time. Like if there's the specific buildings, which are hard to build you tend to attack those so you can get them out a lot easier than it would be to build them normally. And then uh, everyone gets a, a random knight at the beginning, or you, you get two and get to pick one. So it's like your starting knight, they all have, you know, asymmetric powers. They're all different, and there are there are ten in a, in a four-player game, so there's lots of difference there. And the action rondelle that we talked about is randomly set up every, every game. And that does really does change the game if the way you uh, the way the the golden the golden tokens move around and how they build up really changes how the game is played every time. I haven't really felt that the random board setup has added considerably to a different playing feel. I mean, from tactical consideration from tactical consideration you might be looking for the next gray token and it just so happens that based on the board layout that'll cause you to go north rather than south but i don't that that doesn't really make me feel like the game is is different considerably it's not huge the only the, the one i was talking about mostly is the there's the brown tokens uh seated throughout the map and when you defeat them other than like the other ones that give you a bunch of victory points these ones will let you build the building that's depicted on it mostly for me the variety comes in some of the more interesting Orders of Knighthood. Now, a lot of the Orders of Knighthood are some variation of add or subtract a couple of tokens from your Moncala, from your Rundle Wheel, rather, and you get some number of free upgrades at the start of the game. And honestly, so there, there, there's, a, there's a fair number of those, right? You start with 10 tokens and three upgraded spaces, or you start with 13 tokens and one upgraded space, or whatever. And those are all fine. Uh, some of them are slightly more interesting. The Knights of Montesa are interesting. The Knights that have only six on their rondel, but they get a plus one to every action. That's more interesting. The ones that 
fiddle with how you distribute tokens on your rondel, I thought were, were particularly cool. Those ones I like. And, you know, that that level of player differentiation, I think, adds to replayability a lot more than just, you know, randomly seeding the board, because that didn't do much for me. And no, on, on, not, not saying it's huge, but it is sure. something. Yeah, yeah. No, it's better than nothing. That's absolutely sure. That's absolutely true. The components, I got to say, are pretty nice. Yes, I have that. That's another point I have. It's fantastic components, even though mine is deluxified. TM. So, but in wonderful metal coins. You have the option... That's under one of my bad points. I'll just go over that point right now. It's the <laughs> fact that uh, you do have the option of either using uh, wood or plastic. And some people think the, the wood components are better than the plastic ones and therefore ruin my game experience by making my <laughs> game look ugly. <laughs> okay, well, no. This, is, this, I think, is really a strong point of Crusaders because if you compare some of the other Deluxified TM versions of Tasty Mineral games, the non-deluxified TM versions are a lot jankier looking. So let's take your favorite of them, Orléans, right? The base game of Orléans just has cardboard discs that you shuffle in the bag as opposed to those nice wooden discs with stickers. And that, to me, is a considerable tactile difference in terms of play experience, in terms of the quality of presentation. Not a, not a deal-breaker by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a significant difference. Here... In Crusaders, I was surprised at the quality of the of the base game non-deluxified TM components. So this is me praising the quality of the base game by pointing out that the deluxified TM version is not, uh, you know, a, it doesn't stand head and shoulders above the base one. The base one has incredibly thick cardboard counters, has a lovely little two-level player board that we, you and I both love those two-level player boards. So you can slot things in. That's how you slot in your random rondel. You have these nice chunky cardboard wedges that you put into the recess and that that's what uh, delivers your 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 rondel the wooden buildings are screen printed so they have little graphical details on the wooden buildings i thought it was great now whether you prefer the plastic or the wood is a matter of uh, that you know that's that's what you would call one of those good problems to have i just think that the base game looks lovely uh even though you know, again, you know, I look at a map of Europe and I start wondering what exactly the game's about. But again, I said I, I've said my piece on that. But let's go into it since we talked about the two layer player boards because we didn't really talk about the fact that it's very much like Scythe or any of these other games like uh, Terra Mystica or Gaia Project. When you put these buildings out on the board, it increases your action. So you have like this end little engine building or tableau builder that you get to choose different strategies, right? You can go for like a heavy influence strategy or, you know, something that will build your buildings better or getting more knights out on the board. And I think there's some interesting choices there as well. Yeah. So this this is where we're starting to get into some of my serious misgivings about Crusaders. When I'm playing the game, and this may just be a me problem, I really do feel like everything is just pure tactical consideration and it's really just a question of grabbing the low-hanging fruit. Right, I'm sitting there and I'm figuring, okay, what kind of buildings do I want to specialize in? Oh, well, there's this cheap building site over here. Eh, might as well go and get that because I can afford to do it this turn. Then I look at my rondel and say, okay, what can I do this turn? And then I do that. And then wash, rinse, and repeat. And if I'm not able to do anything the turn that I'm, that I'm on, all I do is I look one or two turns ahead max. And very often I find a lot of the points just comes from just you know, going after the low-hanging fruit and taking what's available to say nothing of how lucrative an influence-heavy strategy is, which is just, just to say, you know, build a whole bunch of churches, again, if they happen to be cheap and easy to build, and then every time you do an influence action, whether it's a, a, an action all by itself or just leftover from an upgraded Musfluence or Influster, and that could be worth a lot of points. And I, I, I've, I had 
the same problems with uh, Coimbria. Generally speaking, if you're going to present to me this, this try to present to me what could be a fleshed out world and all, all these different actions, and then the lucrative one is just, I'm just going to take this action to get blunt points, eh, I don't find it particularly satisfying. Agreed. The other big problem that I have with the the sort of dis- the quality of decision making in Crusaders uh, has to do with the tempo of the game. I find the end game very dull in Crusaders they will be done because the end game is where your decisions narrow considerably. Broadly speaking, I prefer it when a game has the end game have your options open up. As the game develops, as the map develops, as the players develop their strategy, you start seeing more new ways to interact with either the game or the other players or things like that. The decision space broadens, not narrows. And in Crusaders, I find it works exactly the other way around. The last few turns of the game, everyone's off in their own corner of the map. There's so few building spaces left to do. You're all just doing your own thing, eking out that last upgrade that you you know you just might as well get around to it. There's nowhere left to build, not in a tense, interesting way, but just literally in a sense of, oh, well, they're all gone. And so the, the game kind of ends on a whimper. And so in terms of that, I, I, I wish it I, I wish that something slightly more interactive had been in place. Maybe a way to interact with your opponent's buildings. Not necessarily burning them to the ground, although during the Crusades plenty of that happened. Uh, but maybe in a way to, I don't know, interact with the, the other players in a slightly more robust way so that when the map is full of your opponent's buildings, there's something interesting to do rather than less interesting things to do. Yeah, like the interaction, that's another bad point. There's not much interaction. It mostly entails inspecting your other players' boards to make sure they're not about to do a build action so you don't clear out an enemy and have them like burst in and take up the spot because we already said that building spaces are at a premium in this game and you really don't want someone snatching one up on you. What else do I have for a good point? Easy to teach. Like, super easy. It is a lighter game, which I which is good, right? It, and it, it does, accompl- I feel, accomplishes what it sets out to do. It's not overcomplicated. It plays fairly quickly. And, like I said, easy to teach. It is very simple. It is very light. I don't think it's necessarily too long. I do have problems with the end game, as I said. But, yeah, it's 45 to 60 minutes when everyone knows what they're doing. I think it's pretty expensive for what is effectively a, a filler game. But as I say, the production quality is very nice. And I've, I've dropped 70 bucks for, for basically fillers as well. Again, I, I already talked about Paper Tales. If you buy Paper Tales and get the expansion, you're looking at roughly the same MSRP as buying a, a retail copy of Crusaders They Will Be Done. And, you know, I, I, I don't really have much against the game. As I say, there are some. I wish there was slightly more player interaction. I wish the endgame worked differently. It's just really, really light. I don't think that the quality of decision-making is spectacular, but then again, it doesn't really have to be, given, given the low mental load that's involved. So there you have it. I think that uh, whether, you're, whether you're in the mood for a game of Crusaders that will be done is largely going to be a question of whether the presentation of the theme is going to be a sticking point for you. It is kind of for me. It's less so for Walker, but Walker can see where I'm coming from. And whether you're interested in a sort of big box, 60-minute, very light decision-making uh, filler game. It's light decisions, but I think they're very good decisions. I think it, it, I very much enjoy the game, and I'm looking forward to playing it even more, even though I played it at least 10 times this week. So that is Crusaders by Tasty Minstrel Games. Now on to the topic of the week, which is thematic disconnects. Very unlike the game we just talked about. Has nothing to do with thematic disconnects, I'm sure. None whatsoever. So that was part of what got me thinking about this topic. The other thing that got me thinking about this topic, and I'd like to to start with this because I'm, I'm very disappointed. There's a game that I saw called Dawn of the Peacemakers. 
and this is a cooperative game where you play as adventurers trying to stop a war. And in it's scenario-based, and it's got legacy elements, because everything's got to have legacy elements now, but there are the two sides, and they basically work on AI decks, and you have to influence them to try to make sure that the battle ends on terms favorable to you, the aforementioned peacemakers. When I first read about this, I was instantly intrigued. I was fascinated, and I started devouring as much information as I, as I could, because that, that specific theme of manipulating a conflict to make sure that it doesn't escalate so that it, that it stops on your terms, on peaceable terms, is really cool and hasn't really been done. There are lots of pacifistic games out there, right? You know, the, and we, we talk a lot about them, too. There's, not every game has to have fighting, and there's lots of great pacifistic games, but there aren't really many games about stopping a war, about the process of forming peace. However, and this is where the thematic disconnect comes in, the way that the game chooses to render this as as a victory condition in Dawn of the Peacemakers is basically the way you win every scenario is by drawing out the bloodshed and maximizing the body count every time. Because every army has a motivation track. And what you want to do is make sure that both armies are sick of fighting and withdraw at the same time. But... If either army surrenders, you lose. If any army's leader is killed, because that's another way to end conflicts in, in a lot oftentimes in either historical versions or even fantasy or science fiction versions, you know, decapitate or assassinate the leader, then the army either disperses or surrenders or what have you. That also will lose you, you, lose you the scenario. So the way you do it is you make sure that you grind out the casualties and so, that, so that their motivation drops so low that they don't surrender, but they're done killing for the day. So they'll show up tomorrow to kill some more. So in other words, maximize the casualties, prolong the bloodshed, make sure that as many people die as possible, which just utterly and completely killed any enthusiasm I had for trying the game. I've talked to people who played the game. I've talked to people who like the game. I've talked to people who don't like the game. I've read the rules. I've looked at scenarios. I've looked at playthroughs just to make sure that I, because again, I, I was so enthusiastic about this theme that I wanted Dawn of the Peacemakers to be an interesting take. I would have, I would have forgiven lots of mechanical failures, but just this notion of how to, how to successfully make peace by maximizing the casualties is absurd. I only can agree with that. I don't have any, like, tight points like that. I just have a list of games. Yeah, go for it. How about we played Rising 5? It's this uh, mastermind game. You're literally playing mastermind, but they based around this huge sci-fi... I should do a caveat here. Most of my games that I have listed here are... They have such a robust theme out of the box that it makes it confusing to players just learning the game. Sure, sure. They feel as though there's a lot more to it. That they're or, missing it. That, that, or yeah. they're missing what's supposed to be going on. So you They keep waiting it. for the other shoe to drop so they, they can't internalize what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. So we have Rising 5. We have all these great, fantastic art. These characters that look like they're going to do these amazing things. <laughs> and then it's Mastermind. <laughs> I, I, I hear you completely. There's It's weird because any game with conflict gets a pass. I, I was thinking about this. Of all the games that I felt were, were thematically strange or where player agency didn't really make a whole lot of sense in the context of, of the game over, overall. But it's weird how much we're primed to forgive games with fighting for thematic missteps. Like, for example, I was thinking about Root, which is a game we both we both love, and we're willing to give a pass almost ever for, like, so who are you in Root? Well, you're the leader of the faction. Maybe, maybe not, because the birds also have other leaders, right? They have their other leaders that they install, so then who are you? Are you... 
some ruler that gets dethroned every once in a while? Are you the person on the card? Are you something else? Are you a different... Th- anyway, so the, the, the specific roles we have, the, the sort of diffuse nature of these things, we're willing to forgive in most conflict games. Like, again, I talked about... Uh, Combat Commander a second ago. Who you are in Combat Commander doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense either because you're not one of the squad commanders. They're represented by little chits, so you're kind of some kind of other godly force. This is also true especially in the context of Civ games. Civ games, in almost every Civ game, whether you're in the, you know, the, the, the Francis Tresham good mold or the Sid Meier mold or what have you, you're usually some sort of immortal god-king force. This sort of strange, abstracted geist of uh, of a culture over thousands of years, directing all their actions with with complete transparency on that omnipotence. Anyhow, stuff like that always strikes me as weird. But these are the things that are weird that nobody questions. So I I, I often uh, I, I know exactly what you mean when there are these weird things that you know, shouldn't get in the way of your understanding of the game, but just make people unable to grasp it. Yeah, like Scythe. Let's go right into Scythe. Same yeah. thing. When Scythe first came out, you have these giant robots. You have this fantastic art. You think, here we go. Now it's time. Giant robots facing it's off. It's go with, time, yeah. It's go time. There's going to be, like, giant rockets and missiles, and then and then the game starts, and you're like, what is going on? I do not <laughs> understand. Like, you know, I've learned to love this game yep. immensely, but still, I, I, when it first came out and when it first first few plays, it was just like, why do they have these giant robots here? I like that about Scythe. I like that it's more about subtle threat of conflict influencing what's fundamentally a resource management game. But I know people who say, I'm not going to play that game because... It has all these giant cool mechs, and you fight maybe once or twice over the course of the entire game. It tricked me. I don't like it. And that's legit. <laughs> I completely understand where they're coming from. That's a huge disconnect. I feel the same way about uh, slightly more boring themes as well. We ta- I talked about Voyages of Marco Polo. And somebody actually raised this after we played it. And they said, yeah, so there are victory points, right? Yes. And there's money, right? Yes. And we're merchants, right? Yeah. And money's worthless at the end of the game, right? Yeah. Any game where you're nominally a merchant or, or some merchant family, you obviously get a thematic hook into that, right? You immediately understand it's not the most satisfying thematic hook, but we understand what we're doing. We understand what role we, the players, are manifesting in the game. But then when you have points and money and money doesn't translate neatly into points, you're then wondering, wait, what am I doing this for? Well, you're not a banker. You're a merchant. And merchants, you know, get successful by, by using money to switch goods back and forth. They, but they... So as to get more money, I mean, I, like, nah. so, so, okay, so John Company did this well, right? Because in John Company, money is a means to an end because your goal in John Company is to be an aristocratic British family, but you're sadly middle class. So you're trying to buy your way into respectability. And you, so that's where points are. Points are respectability. You can have all the cash in the world, but the, but the nobles don't care about that unless you've, you know, married uh, some princess or you're the ambassador of France or what have you. So there it's cool. But in, in the context of games where you're just supposed to be merchants and, you know... Yeah, but I, you're not retiring Marco Polo. It's just a, a quick flash of a time. So it's just ass- assessing your, your uh, you know, how you trade goods back and forth. The way you use words with no meaning makes me think that you ought to be a professional <laughs> economist. Let's talk about First Class, because I know you talked about this in First Class. Remember the train game that had <laughs> dimensional portals that transported you all over the country as, yes. your, as your straight rail went from... The train game where your train leaves the station before the train has been built, and you build the train from the back forward. Yes. But remember the destinations. You can go from Chicago to 
t- Istanbul. Oh, I forgot. Oh, oh, you're right. Sorry, I've forgotten about that part too. Yeah, that's great. At that point, don't name your cities. Just make them dots on a map. We'll forgive you because it was an abstracted map. It was just these squiggly lines. Yeah. You don't have to name the cities on the route. Yeah, that was also a strange, 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 strange decision. I have to say though, personally, one of my one of the strangest disconnects that I always have is with a certain class of games that is rooted in historical theme, but then utterly fails to give the player any sense of what they themselves are doing. And this is particularly true of a number of games by Martin Wallace. Usually what Martin Wallace does, because he comes from a wargaming background, the setting of his games always comes through very strongly. And you get the sense that he knows what he's talking about. But what the players themselves do often makes no sense. For example, uh, there, there are three in particular, and some of these games I actually like. Pericles, Byzantium, and, and Liberté. All of these are games with very strong warring factions. And all of them have the players playing as all of the warring factions at the same time. All of them, simultaneously. And it's always the same story that he tells. Your your power brokers that are manipulating both sides against each other. And it's like, I'm sorry, that's not true. Like, it didn't work that way. During the French Revolution, there weren't these shadowy figures that were manipulating radicals and royalists all for their own sense of victory points and profit. I just... It's, it, it, it's so unfortunate to have a game so rich in historical setting just to drop it at the the five yard line that's a sports reference right yeah sure yeah go sports yeah uh i prefer it in imperial in imperial you're also like shadowy power brokers buying bonds in different countries but it makes sense because it's an economic game about controlling economic interests i have imperial 2030 here oh really but for a totally different reason i've already talked about this on another show where where I came from mostly like wargaming group and off we went to Gen Con and we pull out this Imperial 2030 and we see tanks and troops in a world map and we're getting ready for this big Axe and Allies world conflict. And it's like, what do you mean that's not my army anymore? <laughs> what do you mean I'm not controlling the US and you have two countries and, and it, it was just, it blew our minds and, and it, yet another example of just a first play where you just don't grasp what the designer's trying to pull out. That, to me, I think, is a great example of a thematic disconnect that really, really works. Now, I absolutely agree with you. You have to make sure that players enter into it with the right mindset. But it's one of those ways in which you can really exploit that disconnect to make a truly novel play experience. This notion of everything being transactional, of not getting wedded to your own territory. The same is true in Tigers and Euphrates. So Tigers and Euphrates suffers from the same old immortal god king type of uh, type of affair. And people criticize Tigers and Euphrates for being themeless. We don't necessarily agree, as we said. But that's another thing. You have to understand... Even though you're kind of building this map with your tiles, they're not your tiles anymore. Right. The, the moment they leave your hand, they're not yours. Yeah, we off, we warn people yeah. often is like when they start building off in their little corner. Yeah. We warn them, say that's not that's not going to be your little town. Exactly. Be, be, be ready. And that very much is a style of game that I enjoy. But you're absolutely right that that the components and the theme and the setting serve to communicate bad decisions or bad strategies to the players. You're absolutely right. Another one I have is Gugong, what we just played. We talked about the boating action. We've both talked about the boat action on the bottom of the board. And and I'm thinking about, uh, we thought maybe it was because the rules weren't written particularly well, but I think it's just one of these things where it didn't really explain in the book what you were doing on these boats. And it was just sort of like this weird action that just sort of pulled us out that didn't make sense. 
Quite possibly. Actually, uh, somebody involved in rewriting the rulebook reached out to me on Twitter to talk about our confusion with the boat action because we both mentioned that. And uh, the new version, the, the the new version of the rulebook is much much clearer, much nicer. Doesn't go into detail about what the boating action represents, but it's it's much more straightforward about how it actually works. Sometimes I think also factions' motivations get blunted a little bit in game presentation. Allow me to talk about one of my favorite games that, uh, and I say this not to sound like some sort of snob, but most people probably haven't heard of it. It was just this tiny, tiny, tiny release called La Révolution Française, La Patrie en Danger, which is a beautiful political game about the French Revolution, which was a bit of a nightmare in terms of rules presentation, but had a, had a number of very, very interesting ideas. Anyway, uh, it has, uh, has uh, all these tracks I know I'm sick and tired of tracks in Euro games, but in war games, I quite like tracks, actually. And uh, the royals, uh, the royalists get more or less angry based on what you do. And so if various laws get passed that are bad for the royals, they get very angry. So far, so good. Very thematic, great, straightforward uh, uh, ways to manipulate factions to, to get them in a certain perspective. But then again, they, they drop the ball right at the end because the angrier the royals get, the more likely they are to favor military reaction, which, as the royalist player, you love. The royalist player in La Révolution Française loves it when the royalists get angry. So what happens is you have this very, very strong... Uh, conflict, which sometimes happens in game. There's the thematic play, and there's the smart play. And I hate it when there's a tension there. That is one of my least favorite elements. I, I made the same comment about Factory Funner. I don't like it when the smart play and the fun play are at odds. I don't like it when the smart play and the thematic play are at odds. So you as the royalist, you might be sitting there, if you have any power in Parliament, you might be thinking, oh, well, I could pass this law that's great for the royalists, but then they'll calm down, and then they won't support radical military response. So yeah, sure, fine. Screw over my people. Tax me. Rip me of my, of my nobles status. Go ahead. Uh, so, you know, it's stuff like that that, that I often find uh, unfortunate. So in, in a rewrite of the rules of La Révolution Française that I've been working on and on off through the years, I'm actually thinking of changing the polarity of all the royalist responses just to adequately reflect the fact that if you're the royalist player, you know, if you do them favors, they will help you rather than if you screw them over, they will help you. Anyway, that was a long, that was a long walk for a very specific game, but it's a great game and I, I miss playing it. Maybe I'll subject you to it someday. All right, my next game is called Lisboa. Welcome to the train wreck. <laughs> Why aren't you in marketing, Walker? I don't know. So Lisboa is a game that I was looking forward to, and it had a great theme. It was like a, a very famous fire, and you're rebuilding the city, and it just the actions were so disconnected from each other and so all over the place. It just it made no sense whatsoever and did not create any flow, in my opinion, and it was not something that that rang true for either of us. I don't know if I would say that it was a particular instance of disconnect, but I do agree with you that there was a strong hook that they then kind of bungled because the, the original impetus for Lisboa is all about, you're right, we're building after this tremendous earthquake which led to floods and fires and all this other, other stuff. But that was just a small part of the game. It was just shunted off to the corner and there were 17 other things you were doing. But then again, it's a Vital Lacerda game, so naturally it wouldn't be a Vital Lacerda game if you weren't doing about 17 other things at any given time. All right, so my last one. Is a game we've been playing. It's a brand new game. It's called Keyforge. And this is another game where you're forging these keys. <laughs> and there's all of these factions. And they, there's really no story in behind what anything that's going on. So it's very hard to explain the game to people or give people an idea of what's going on or sort of tie everything together. So I think that's another opportunity lost. Yeah, my understanding is that the nominal explanation is the players are supposed to be these godlike, immortal, untouchable beings. Something, 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 forging keys. And 
I agree with you. The, the, it's very often, it's very difficult to get players solidly engaged with a theme the more abstract and powerful. Like, the, the bigger the scope you get, it's often very difficult to get any sort of grounding unless there's a very specific historical theming. It's the same problem that I identified with the Civ games. You know, if you, the Civ games are great in the sense that you have all these trappings of civilization, but the moment you start scrutinizing any of the details, particularly in the Sid Meier tradition, everything starts to fall apart and you get this strong disconnect and you wonder, wait, what am I doing here? That's one of the great things about dungeon crawls, to be frank. It's, I think, one of the reasons why the, the, the genre is so long lived, because in many dungeon crawls, you're this person. That that's you. You're this person doing these specific things. I'm gonna I'm gonna move those four squares and whack this thing above the head. That's me right there. And, you know, it may be trivial, especially when instantiated in dungeon crawls, but it really does help to get players' minds into the game. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. If you liked it, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.